Okay, welcome back to another episode of The Millennial Entrepreneur. My name's Sina, and I love following the journeys of other young entrepreneurs. In this episode, it's a real special one. It's actually one of the first times we've had an angel investor on the podcast. And so I spoke with Roy Samuel, angel investor and entrepreneur who successfully exited his previous company after attracting 4.5 million users. And so we cover the journey of how Roy started his company to how it successfully got acquired a few years later. And also as a startup, how you can effectively gear yourself up for that angel investment. Obviously he went from startup owner to then becoming an angel investor. And so he saw a few patterns that obviously as an angel investor himself, how you can kind of, yeah, get that investment. Obviously as well, tips and advice of how you can convert interest from an angel investor into money in your bank account. That's such a vital phase that a lot of people kind of don't pay attention to. They kind of think, you know, let me attract as many angel investors as possible and then kind of like one of them will say yes, but Roy really concentrates on kind of increasing that conversion rate and you know, how how you close that deal pretty much. And so yeah, we talk about that there. So no shout out this week because it's already a bit of a long episode, unfortunately. But if you do want to feature next week's episode in the form of a shout out, please be sure to leave a written review on Apple Podcasts. And as a thank you, I'll give you a shout out in the next episode, of course. And while you're at it, please do subscribe to us on YouTube. All the full video episodes, including this one, will be on YouTube as well for you to watch. I know a lot of you like to watch the full video episodes as well. So while you're at YouTube, please do subscribe and you can watch the full episodes there, including this one and any future ones, of course. So that's it for me. Thank you so much for tuning in and I really hope you enjoy the episode. Hey Roy, how are you doing? Hey Sina, how's it going mate? Yeah, really good. I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. Really excited to finally find time to speak to you. I mean, I know you have a hugely busy schedule. You've got a hard stop in, in an hour's time. So yeah, really glad to have you on the podcast finally. Yeah, absolute pleasure to be here and thank you for having me on. I think it's a really unique opportunity for us as sort of a podcast because you know, a big theme within the podcast is kind of like, obviously, like starting your own business. And a, ho- a huge element of that is, you know, raising money, inevitably, right? And we've spoken about it before, you know, talking about like venture capital. And obviously, angel investing comes up as as an avenue, right? And you're in a unique position where you are actually an angel investor. And so I'd love to kind of, kind of talk to you more about that, obviously, like later on in the episode about sort of the, the key things that you look for as an angel investor, because... I feel like there is there is that sort of difference of when you started your business and now you're an angel investor. It's probably different things that you they should probably match up though if you're thinking about it. But like there are different things that you probably like as as you've experienced both. So yeah, I'd love to kind of talk to you about that in, in you know later down in in the episode. But I think just just starting out, just for people to kind of find out a bit more about you, how like how did you kind of start? What was your first business that you kind of like went down? Yeah, so I launched my first business when I was at my third year of uni, uh, essentially a online platform bringing together students, helping them create different types of content, helping them plan nights out and connect in different ways. And it was a really cool proposition and we managed to roll out in I think eight or nine different unis in the UK, but students don't like spending money. Um, at that time, advertisers didn't really care too much about hitting students either. So uh, learned a lot of things from that one, but primarily probably worth going into a market where people have a bit more cash to spend. Um, so shut that down, uh, started studying my master's down in London and really recreated what I did for the student market, but in the sports market. So we created this content creation toolkit 
helping people create podcasts, videos, articles, lots of different types of content, and then a community within the platform to share all that content with. And we were super fortunate with that, you know, bit of right time, right place, timing's everything, of course, uh, especially because, as I said, we applied that to the sports and also the esports world. And it was just when uh, social publishing was getting popular, and especially with esports, and Twitch was just coming out. So we got really fortunate with that, managed to scale it, um, sort of UK, Western Europe, North America, Australia, uh, grew that to around four and a half million monthly users, which was an amazing journey. Learned lots, did lots of good things, lots of bad things, as you can imagine. Um, and then we managed to exit that business to actually to an esports company called Gfinity in early 2018, um, which was an amazing learning experience for me. The CEO of Gfinity at that time was a guy called Gary Cook. Um, Gary was the CEO of Man City during the time when the Mansours came over and he helped them build out that empire. And then he went to the UFC and sat on their board when they were acquired. So, you know, amazing guy to learn from, like real privilege to be acquired by him uh, and Gfinity at that time. And uh, yeah, really fantastic learning experience. Wow, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, yeah, I'd love to kind of, before we, before we go to that stage where you were ready for, you know, the the acquisition phase, what was the kind of, like, how did it actually work as a toolkit? And also, like, how did you kind of scale it to that level? Yeah, it's a really good question. So we, we really broke it down into three core sections. So we had um, something called a fan zone, which is really a free-for-all. That's where really with a community built where people could engage with each other based around the sports they wanted. If it was, you know, football or kite surfing, right? No matter what it was, you, you could all engage there. And we had ways of monitoring those who were getting the best engagement. And you could start seeing, you know, influencers, um, you know, exist and start to come through within that fan zone. And then we could graduate them to almost the next stage, which was content that we created as a news source, as a source for entertainment, as a source for content, you know, competing with the likes at that time, Sky Sports, ESPN, whoever it might be. And then we had a premium tier, which was all of our, uh, you know, real sport originals. So, you know, Netflix original trying to be that sort of that content, so we had original documentaries. We created documentaries with, you know, West Ham Football Club. Uh, so, for example, when they were leaving their old stadium and moving to the new one, we did like a, a historical look back at everything they'd done with a few celebrities who are all you know West Ham fans, uh, and that was behind a, a paywall. We used to do that with brand sponsors. So those are the sort of three areas that worked. How do you how do you track your users? How did you scale it to that to that stage where you were ready to to acquire to get acquired? So we were really good at harnessing network effects. Um, when you give people, when you empower people with the chance to to create. To, to make something, you give them a real incentive to share. So we found so many of our, our creators ended up being our marketers, right? So rather than posting things on their own blog, for example, because you know a lot of people used to have sports blogs back then, um, they'd post it into Real Sport and then probably share it into a Facebook group that they were in back when Facebook had really good organic traction. And we were another thing to talk about timing. This was all when Facebook was not pay to play. You know, when you could really get good organic traction without spending a ton of cash. We used to have a couple of viral videos, 2 million views, you know, that penny spent, um, you know, unheard of now. So again, very fortunate with timing there, but it's about giving people that empowerment and um, saying, you know, you can post what you want here, you can connect with other like-minded people and 
please feel free to share it everywhere so people can see how good of a content creator you are. So they would also, so in kind of unison to you guys creating your own content, they, as the user, they could create content also and then also share it. Yeah, exactly. And people, it was quite aspirational because users could create their own content in the fan zone and then they could graduate into creating content under the Real Sport banner. And we had some amazing stories. We had one guy who, who you know, was part of the fan zone, a guy called Alistair, graduated up into um, you know, being a content writer under the Real Sport brand and a content creator under the Real Sport brand. Actually became so good, he ended up with a full-time job with us um, you know, in-house, and now he's still with uh, Gfinity. So you know, it was really aspirational just seeing how people could you know, really actually make a bit of money within in what they loved doing, which was writing about sports, engaging with sports. So, yeah, it was amazing to see how many people did graduate from that fan zone into actually being able to do it as, uh, as something a bit more tangible. I think networking effects is something that's obviously like thrown around a lot as, as something that, you know, it could be really critical to the growth of a company. So I guess what are the, and also like it gives the unique insight of an angel investor now, how, how do you kind of implement network effects in your business? Obviously it doesn't work for every business, but for the ones that do, how do you implement it most, most effectively? So for me, it's, it's that key piece of how do you turn your users into your marketers? Because that's the most powerful way of harnessing network, right? It's, it's saying, how do you make something as shareable as possible? Especially in the consumer sense. Um, which obviously is you know my background, but how do you give people the easy ability and the incentive to go and bring other people into the environment? And you know you can see that through it could be like referral schemes, Deliveroo did amazing at that, for example. Uber did amazing at that, or it could be the instant gratification bit. You know, giving people the ability to make great content, which is going to get them a lot of likes on Facebook. You know, so for me, it's about how do you allow people rather than thinking about network effects internally, which is obviously very important. But for me, the key is about how do you then get that to, to suck more people in? Yeah, no, that's really useful. So I guess when you scale it to that level and how many years did it take from kind of starting it to scaling to that level of like the 4.5 million users that you, that you mentioned? Um, we were really, really fortunate with the journey. So we started working on technology so in mid-2014, um, launched early 2015, and then we exited in March 2018. So we exited about three years after we launched. So how did that how did that conversation happen? Like how did did they come to you? Did you, did you go to them? Did you have to get ready as a business to get acquired? Like how does this how does, how does this whole process work? So we actually really saw a big opportunity. So we started off in traditional sports, loved it, massive sports fan myself. You know that's what I wanted to do, but super saturated, right? You're competing with the BBC, you're competing with Sky Sports. So we started looking at esports. And we just saw, yes, you know, maybe half a million of the monthly users were on the traditional sports side, but esports is where it really, really picked up in a big way. So um, Gfinity, you know, at that time was a business which uh, was amazing on the, the B2B side. They had some amazing deals with the F1 and EA and the Premier League, you know, doing amazing things there. But we knew that with the traffic that we were building and the network we were building, we could in many ways, be community as a service for them, right? We had that community there. We knew that that could add a massive layer in terms of data, in terms of, you know, how, how do they make it more exciting for their B2B partners? Um, so we, we were really working on that originally as a commercial contract uh, between the two businesses. But, you know, as it transpired over time, it just made more sense for them to acquire us. 
Yeah, I, that's not the first time that I've heard a story like that. Actually, it's 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 fairly common where you know a, a smaller business such as yourselves at the time would kind of come in to kind of help out with plugging the gap of technology or or whatever. And over time, it's just it makes more sense for them to say, "Oh, can we acquire you?" And it's kind of like it's kind of like a thing out of the blue, right? Like you probably didn't expect at the time, did you? <laughs> yeah, I mean. I remember there was a, a conversation me and my co-founder had at the time. We were like, are they going to acquire us? You know, just like just putting it out there into the universe. Didn't think it was going to happen. And three months later, the offer came in. So, yeah, it was, you know, in the back of your mind, you think maybe, but probably not. And then, yeah, it just uh, it did happen that way, which was great. I've, I've obviously never been in that room where they give you like a number and like you just like... What's the emotion side of that? As in like when they, when they actually give you like a solid number, I'm obviously not like asking to share or whatever, but like from an emotional standpoint, what goes through your head? It's, it's funny, right? Because having gone through the fundraising journey and every founder will know this is you know that getting an offer is the first part in a very, very long journey into actually getting it over the line, right? So amazing you know, excitement for the first half an hour. And then it's like, oh my God, you know, there's so much due diligence to do. And, you know, we were, I was, I think, 22 when I founded Real Sport. And obviously things that you do right at the start, you don't even remember when you're trying to figure things out for the first time. You're like, shit, I think this makes sense, but we're not sure. And then obviously when you're going through due diligence for an acquisition, fine tooth comb over everything. So all those things that you thought, oh, right, we should, probably shouldn't have done that, but uh, yeah, it's not too bad, that will be okay. And then that's the experience, right? And now you think from day one, right, this is going to come up again at the end. So let's make sure we get it right. Yeah, for sure. Um, Roy, I'd love to move on to sort of, okay, so you, you've exited that company, obviously like you're an angel investor now, but at that time where you exited it, what was your kind of next step? What did you think in your mind that you would be doing? Did you think you'd launch another startup? Did you think like you would, take a massive break but what do you think you do yeah so obviously the first year after the exit was integration right so we we were going to be there for 12 months so it was really busy you know really busy for the first six seven months getting the teams integrated you know so many cultural issues around that oh, again amazing learning experience but it was busy right at the start but i knew from day one that i wanted to angel invest because when we started real sport we had no money. We had zero money. Me and my co-founder, we were working in a basement underneath the Papa John's, no windows. Uh, it was freezing cold. So, um, you know, when we first got that angel investment, game-changing for the business, right? So I knew that I wanted to get involved with that. What was really, really interesting to me, I thought there's going to be nothing more difficult than raising money as a founder, right? It's the hardest thing. That that's that's going to be the most time-consuming, all the rest of it. What I didn't realize is, in many ways, it's actually more difficult as an angel investor. And the reason for that is when you're the founder, you're living and breathing that fundraise, right? It is all consuming. It's the first thing in the morning when you wake up, last thing before you go to bed at night. On the angel investor side, in the UK, most angel investors are working on a full-time project. They're managing their existing investments and every founder who needs stuff from them and needs, you know, validation or the rest of it. And then on top of that, to find time to do origination, due diligence, it's basically a full-time job in and of itself. It's why VCs exist. It's why family offices exist. So I was like, wow, this is tough. And it's why you see a lot of the best deals going to the same hands time and time again. 
because they're the ones who are set up that way. They've either got the time, the resource, the infrastructure to do that angel investing. So I really came to start thinking, maybe the reason why more deals aren't happening is actually because of time pinch on the investor side rather than on the founder side. So and I know we'll go into it a bit later, but that was one of the big drivers behind wanting to develop that angel investing toolkit. Yeah, yeah. I think before we jump into that, and I'd love to jump into that, is that's such an interesting point that you made that it might actually be harder for an angel investor to find that startup rather than the other way around for a startup to find that angel investor. That's really interesting you said that. And um, I've never really thought about it from that point of view. Obviously, as a, as a, as a startup you know, founder myself, uh, for wing like i've never really thought of it of from the from the angel investor standpoint and i know we're not ready yet to to chase after you know investment but i think what'll be amazing to talk about is i guess from an angel angel investor standpoint what's things that you kind of learned that you would kind of change as a founder before and also like for people listening that want that angel investment what are kind of things that that you really look for as an angel investor yeah really good question um in terms of how I see early stage investment. And I have been thinking about this a lot recently myself. I really see it as like a three-legged stool, right? One leg is the sector slash, you know, the opportunity. One leg is, you know, the traction and, and, and the growth. And the other leg is the team, right? And these are the three things that I think most angel investors are looking in. They're looking in, you know, do I know anything about this space? You know, do, do I understand the sector that I'm, that I'm assessing right now? And do I think this opportunity is, is right time, right place within that sector? The other is no investor invests in a snapshot, right? Anyone can make a snapshot look pretty. And even when you, you, know, you read a deck, it's condensing the whole history of a startup probably to one slide, you know, our traction slides. Everyone can make a snapshot look pretty. So they're interested in seeing growth. Investors invest in the trajectory. Um, and the third is the team, which obviously speaks for itself. And without any of those three, you can't sit on the stool, right? The two-legged stool doesn't work. So that's now how I've started to see it. Mm, that's really interesting. And I guess from your experience within the past two years of, of being an angel investor, you must have come across a lot of startups that have kind of two out of the three things. And especially out, it must be quite a difficult decision because you're, you're almost like trying to convince yourself, no, their team is good or like, no, their technology is good like because the team's so amazing. So like, yeah, have you come across any businesses? like 100%, I've invested in them. Um, and you know, every angel investor I speak to says the same, which is at the start, you make investments that you would never make once you have made a few more and, and probably lost, lost a couple, right? Because there are businesses that you love There'll be business that you love, teams, founders that you'll love, and you'll, you'll really be wanting them to do well. And you'll invest and it won't work out because they didn't, it wasn't the right time. You didn't actually understand that space as well as you thought you did. And it doesn't work and, and it happens. But ultimately, if you're investing in, I do think if you're investing in people that you like, there's still massive redeeming quality. So, for example, uh, I invested in a female founder called Claudia. You know, she's fantastic. And, you know, from the team perspective, it was all there. Just wasn't the right time for that proposition. But now, Claudia is actually my COO. So, you know, there's, there's a lot to be learned from making the wrong ones. And, and there's still redeeming qualities in those. Uh, but it's really important to track them, right? And understand why you made that decision. 
why you shouldn't have made that decision and, and what you'd do differently. Um, but, but every investor I speak to says, you know, normally when they start investing, they probably do a load of deals right at the start, um, you know, get a bit trigger happy, a bit of FOMO, uh, and, then, and then start to pace out a bit later once they, they know what they're doing. So the trick of the trade is to find a very recent angel investor and just get, basically give them some shit deal. <laughs> I couldn't possibly say that, but um, I'm, I'm sure people have thought that before. It was amazing talking to Roy about how kind of he transitioned from a startup himself obviously exiting and then becoming an angel investor and so i wanted to ask him the magic question of as an angel investor himself how startups you know i I own a startup myself with wing how can startups actually gear themselves up most effectively in order to get that angel investment yeah really good question so one of the key things i mentioned in that three-legged stool is investors don't invest in a snapshot they invest in a trajectory because as we know, it's all about execution, right? It's all about saying, we're going to do this, we've done it. So never too early to start educating them. Because if you want to get, if you're a first-time founder, not raised money yet, early on in the journey, if you want them to invest six months down the line, you need to be speaking to them in two months' time. Um, because you need to take them on that journey. Get them excited about what you're doing, get them educated, and prove to them that you can hit milestones. And these don't need to be... Because some people say, oh, well, we can't hit the 10K MRR until we raise. I say, yeah, well, then you're setting the wrong milestones, right? It should be about getting that three more letters of intent or hitting a, a development milestone, whatever it is, but proving to your investors that you can understand what your growth looks like and that you can execute on it. So I think that's a really big one is, is starting that education process as soon as possible. And then the second is, is you know, being ready. And that means collateral, your debt financial model, business plan, time kills deals, time kills deals, you know, uh, across across the board, whether it's sales, whether it's raising investment. So making sure that you are are ready and prepared is is super important. Mm, Yeah, I I really love that. And from from something that I've heard is that it's it's massively a numbers game because like, imagine, you know, you're a salesman trying to sell your business to someone, you know, trying to sell your services. And it's like, think of the conversion rate of that of you trying to sell it to them. Now, the conversion rate is even lower when you're coming across, you know, someone actually investing in your business, right? Because, you know, they're, they're way more involved than someone buying services from you. So it's like, you have to kind of remember that and every sort of rejection that you get from a from an angel investor is like, okay, well, I'm, it's, it's basically selling your business, but on like a colossal scale, right? Because they're, they're way more involved than anyone buying like a, you know, a little toy, like whatever, whatever you sell to them is. Yeah, completely. hundred percent. But what I would say is, you know, it's the old adage, you've got to speak to a thousand investors to find the five that fit. But in reality, you need to find the five that fit. So for me, it's, it's probably not about speaking to as many people as possible. It's probably researching as many people as possible and understanding who's most likely to invest because it's difficult, you know, what is an angel investor? That could mean they like biotech. It could mean they like fintech. You know, it's really difficult to understand what someone's into. So doing that research, understanding what they've invested in, what they like. And if they are in your space, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a good fit because they might have invested in something competitive. So it's about putting that time into research. But what I do say to a lot of founders is if you've got a lot of good conversations, For the most part, investors don't like to waste their own time. So 
there needs to be as much focus on, yeah, bringing good people into the funnel, but moving those already in the funnel, you know, closer to landing. So I, I do uh, quite a lot of mentoring with different programs. I, I was mentoring someone yesterday who was saying, you know, we've got these three, four angel investors, all big ticket guys, and they're, they're doing something pretty cool, uh, the business, pretty cool fintech. Um, and he was like, I just feel like we need to speak to seven or eight more. I said, look, you're speaking to pretty, you know, pretty serious guys. Put your time into converting them. You know, they're, they're not going to be wasting their own time. So sometimes I say to, to founders as well, you know, realize that it's as much work getting those people to, to the bottom of the funnel. There's all the terms you're going to get through all that. And, and maybe sometimes don't worry about starting 30 new conversations. Mm, no, that's really good advice. And yeah, no, that's really, really good advice. So obviously there's a lot of like, I guess, friction or pain points when it comes to angel investing that you obviously experienced as one yourself. And when you kind of entered it, I, I guess you probably didn't really think about those sort of pain points because you weren't really you weren't really there at that time. But now that you're in in the game and you did develop this this toolkit, it's like, yeah, what what pain points exist out there and what does this toolkit that you've developed do to basically make the job of an angel investor easier? Yeah, no, that, that's that's a really good question. I mean the biggest pain point is time, right? It's the biggest pinch. It's the only resource which, you know, is, is finite and never grows, right? It only disappears. So I think that's the biggest one is just time. People don't like to waste their time. One of the reasons why people like warm introductions is because they assume the person who's made that introduction knows what they like or, or is of quality. But it's not actually about them being scared or talking to someone who may not be a good fit. It's they don't want to waste their time. So with connected what we did was create a set of portfolio management tools for angel investors in the same way that you'd have in a crypto wallet in the same way that you'd have in public shares we created something fit for purpose for angel investors and that allows people to manage their investments whether it's things they've invested in through connected whether it's things they've invested in elsewhere and just you know get everything in one centralized place really nice consumable dashboard on the other side we developed a set of progress reporting tools for founders, helping them create um, you know, KPIs, metric dashboards, helping them keep existing stakeholders in the loop, helping them you know, uh, create a shop window in many ways for new investors. And that just allows people to really save a lot of time in that process. Because to say, I'm a B2C fintech, you like B2C fintech, therefore it should work, it's never that black and white, right? It's all about granularity, devils in the details. So we just wanted to create some standardization of data so that everyone can just remove a bit of that guesswork, really understand what other people are interested in and see if it's a good fit. So for us, it's about protecting everyone's time. Um, and that's really the concept behind what we're working on now. That's really cool. And obviously, like you do also work from the startup side. So I guess from, from a startup's perspective, how can they make a job of a angel investor easier? And obviously you, you mentioned time and I guess, how, how do you, how do you reduce their time? Because obviously it's a lot of work trying to look through all these different deals. There's a lot of, obviously with detail, more detail comes more time, right? So like, how, how does the whole process work to make the process easier? Yeah. So I think for, from a founder's perspective, how you can make the life of an angel investor easier is being pretty direct when they ask for information. Because when an angel investor asks questions, they're really asking two types of questions. One type is designed to understand the passion, the vision, the story. And that's where we want the spiel, right? That's where we want 
all the emotion, the rest of it. But when there's a question about, right, what are your numbers on this? Just give us the numbers, right? We don't want to hear, you know, your explanation behind it to try and massage them. We just want to know that. So it's just about understanding the nuance and presenting that information really succinctly, really clearly when they're just looking for an answer rather than a pick. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Is there a lot of bullshit involved in in this sort of process of you trying to find a startup and that startup? Like, I feel like there's a lot of stuff that pe- like, people just like make stuff up or like it's over-exaggerated, you know, massively from both sides, actually, if anything. It's not just from the startup side, I imagine. So like, have you experienced that? Well, it's interesting. I, I think, and this is really a controversial thing to say, but VCs are really bad like that. You know, I know founders get bad time for, for massaging numbers and, and painting the best case scenario, but, you know, look, it, it's a big thing in the moment. There's a big backlash in many ways against VCs who don't bring anything else to the table. And don't get me wrong, there are some amazing, incredible VCs who bring so much value, who can, you know, cash plus expertise, network contacts, all the rest of it. But there are some VCs who just cash with bad terms, sell you the dream, you know, say, right, we're going to do all this. So, yeah, absolutely. You know, investments, uh, it, it can be a, a bit of smoke and mirrors for sure. Yeah. Well, like, as, as an angel investor, how do you kind of navigate that? I think it's a, a bit of experience for sure. And this is also where being a founder previously really helps. You know, it's like a, a founder to investor dictionary, right? When, when they say something, it's like, well, you know what that means. Um, so, you know, it, it, I think being a founder does help with that. How do you get into it? I think it's it's being really, really diligent. You know, yes, taking someone's word is important, but really looking over things for yourself. And I think it's also nice to have comfort, safety numbers. If you've got a lead angel, for example, who has is doing due diligence and around, and they've said they're leading, in many ways, it's on them rather than the founder. Because, you know, in a round where someone says, right, this guy's the lead, you're trusting their due diligence. So I think it's uh, important to trust the people that you're you're working with, really important. But it is difficult, it is difficult. And there's no easy answer to it, right? You know, you're doing the startup thing now, you speak to so many entrepreneurs. I mean, are there things that you've seen on your side in terms of like bullshit alerts, right? Because you speak to a lot of entrepreneurs as well. Yeah, there's loads, there's loads, especially from, Mate, in this, I feel like entrepreneurship, a lot of people just bullshit. It's, it's, it's quite bad because, I mean, even as a host, I get maybe two or three messages a day for people trying to come on. And like, you can tell, you know, when they're like, oh, like I did this with my startup. And it's like, I don't think you did. Like, they, they just make ex- really extravagant claims that I'm like, I don't think that's, that's even like possible or like numbers that, that, aren't even like plausible like they, they were, oh, well, I've been running for three months and I've raised this much capital and it's like I look at I look at what they I look at their LinkedIn or whatever and it's like I don't know it doesn't seem plausible to me and I feel like there's a lot of toxic information out there especially for young founders so I mean that's what I really try to get this source the, the source that I'm making now like this podcast I, I try to be as honest as possible um from me and my guests right like that's why I don't want to invite some people on where there's even like a a hesitation involved from my side so i don't want to spread that like that whole that whole vibe to, to everyone does that makes sense completely that makes perfect sense do you know what i think is one of the most damaging things the entrepreneurial community is actually linkedin because it's it's in the same way that instagram is probably bad for body image 
LinkedIn is bad for business image for a lot of for a lot of founders, right? You go on and every day it's like funding announcement. These guys raise 100 mil. These guys raise 50 mil. And you know that that's a tiny percentage of all the stories out there. And I do think it leads to a lot of entrepreneurs doing these like LinkedIn brags to like try and you know, get clout, whatever it might be, because they feel like they need to keep up with it, not realizing like you don't know what that journey looks like anyway. You know, yeah, that's a really nice headline article, like article headline, sorry, but you don't know the full story. But it, I think it leads to a lot of people feeling that they need to do that when it's, you know, they're just, their business isn't there yet. Yeah, it's difficult because it's like, obviously that, that fake it till you make it mentality exists. And it's like, I, I'm not sure if I'm a fan, like when, normally when people say that they're not a fan, but like realistically, I don't know if it's good or if it's bad. I feel like, it might be good for young founders in certain scenarios, but also you're, you are spreading like bullshit and lies. And that's obviously negative. So I don't really know. I'm, I'm very much on the fence with that one. And I could be persuaded either way. So, but I have seen it for sure. Like just like false information. And it's not good, but yeah. I feel like we could talk about this topic for a long time because you just opened up a Pandora's box here. <laughs> There's going to be a lot we need, of, to, we need to wrap it a up. A lot of founders listening to this being like, shit, I shouldn't have seen it, that, that message. <laughs> no, that's, that's another thing as well. It's like when people message me and they're like, oh, I've listened to all your episodes and it's like, what's your favorite one? And they struggle to find one. You know what I mean? It's like, that that's the sort of thing that I don't really like. And I know a lot of other podcast hosts, they they they, they have a similar thing where, a lot of people who want to come on, they say that they say that thing, and they're like, "Yeah, it, they're just they're just making stuff up, basically." But you know, the game's the game; you have to navigate it. It's what it is. <laughs> but anyway, um, Roy, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast uh, for sure. And I know, I know this is really valuable because we've never had an angel investor on the podcast before. So I know a lot of people get a lot of value from listening to you from your side because a lot of people that want to be raising money in the future or they're in the middle of it for whatever reason, like I feel like, yeah, it'd be massively useful for, for them to listen to this stuff. So yeah, massively, massively helpful. Thanks so much for having me on, mate. Really, really enjoyed it. Great. Thank you so much. How could people stay in touch with you, stay in touch with what you're doing in the meantime? So I love speaking to entrepreneurs. Uh, reach out to me on LinkedIn, uh, Roy Sanders, R-O-E-I. It's a bit of a weird one. Um, or go through to connected.co and you can you know, find my LinkedIn there. But if you're doing something interesting early stage, I'd love to hear about it. Nice one. Thank you so much, Roy. And yeah, I'll catch you later. Cheers. Thank you so much for staying at the very end of the episode. It means so much to me. And if you did enjoy, please be sure to leave a written review on Apple Podcasts. And as a thank you, I'll give you a shout out in the next episode. And also while you're at it, of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, follow us on Instagram. Uh, that's where all the new episodes and the previews get announced. Uh, LinkedIn, I know a few of you are on LinkedIn uh, and you do use it actively. So we are actually on LinkedIn. So please be sure to, to leave us a like or follow. I can't actually remember which one's which on LinkedIn as well. And yeah, thanks so much again for listening and I'll catch you in the next episode.